We're good to go, guys. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ألف لام ذلك الكتاب لا ريب فيه هدى للمتقين الذين يؤمنون بالغيب ويقيمون الصلاة ومما رزقناهم ينفقون والذين يؤمنون بما أنزل إليك وما أنزل من قبلك وبالآخرة هم يوقنون أولئك على هدى من ربهم وأولئك هم المفلحون رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي فالحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم اجعلنا منهم ومن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر آمين يا رب العالمين ثم أما بعد أبيوان السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Our intention inshallah ta'ala is to cover um, in the 30 nights of Ramadan to go through ayat and reflections and some lessons from Surah Al-Baqarah as much as possible I can't possibly, I thought a lot about telling you how much of the Qur'an we're going to be covering every night. But as I engage in this study, I realize that there are uh, passages and sometimes there are phrases and sometimes there are moments in history that require a lot more discussion. So I'm going to leave it open-ended. Roughly just read two pages ahead, but even if we get through seven ayat today, that would be amazing. I'm going to try not to exceed an hour any, time, any, any one of these rules because we do want to pray and I know it's weeknights and we have to get back to work and other things as well. Uh, and so also the other advantage of keeping things within an hour is good for your attention span. So inshallah ta'ala you try to think about what was said, go back and read and ponder over the same ayat again, and inshallah ta'ala this is how we reinforce our connection at the very least with a significant chunk of Surah Al-Baqarah. I want to get right into the surah itself inshallah ta'ala, and my intention is a little bit creative with this surah. Instead of giving you an introduction to the surah in the beginning, I'm going to be giving you an introduction to the surah as the surah proceeds. So we'll get right into the text, right into the ayat from the very, very beginning, inshallah ta'ala, the biggest surah of the Qur'an. And, uh, and again, key things about what to think about and what subject matter is coming up in the surah, I'll introduce you to as the time comes, bi'ithnillah. Allah Azza wa Jal begins this Madani surah, which means it was revealed after the Prophet وسلم, uh, migrated to Medina. So this is in the latter uh, latter half of the Prophet's mission, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's also important to note when Surah Al-Baqarah is revealed, any Madani Quran is the last. You can say the last 30, 35 percent of the Quran, because the majority of the Quran has already come down. Majority of it came down when the Prophet was in Makkah. So this is the latter portion of the Quran, and this portion of the Quran is, in terms of style, also unique because the ayat tend to be longer. And the subject is a little bit different because when the Prophet ﷺ was receiving the Qur'an in Mecca, he was actually part of a very small minority that were oppressed. And they were considered, in a sense, outlaws, rebels, a threat to society, that kind of thing. And you'll notice that actually a lot of the address in Mecca and Qur'an is, Ya ayyuhan nas, it's to all people. Ya ibadi, my slaves. Or Allah will indirectly say, Qul ya ayyuhan kafirun, Qul lilladheena kafaru. Tell those who've disbelieved, right? But you don't directly find, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, those of you who believe. When the Prophet ﷺ moves to Medina, a new community is formed, and now they're not, even though they're in a, in a time of war, and in a sense some kind of emergency state, because 
the, the, the battles keep erupting between the people of Medina and the people of Makkah, but now at least within the confines of Medina, they're in a state of peace. And they've already made some treaties with the Jewish and Christian communities that are already there. Some of those Jews and Christians have become Muslim, and now they're part of the Ummah of Islam, even though their family members are still Jewish and Christian. right? And now this community of Muslims, Jews and Christians live together, and they've got an agreement with each other to, to defend the city of Medina together. And this is kind of a new life for the Muslims in Medina. And in this time, one of the earliest surahs that started coming down is Surah Al-Baqarah. Actually, it's one of the earlier ones. As a matter of fact, you know, not six months within this time, when the Prophet ﷺ was establishing the community of the Muslims, you know, there was uh, already preparations happening because the Meccans were not happy that the Muslims are stable. So the people of the Quraysh of Mecca were trying to get, get gear up basically for battle. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon we were going to end up within... Within a year and a half, we were going to end up in the Battle of Badr. You know, the first major battle of Islam. So a lot of the ayat in this surah later on, you're going to see, are actually mental preparation for the Battle of Badr. Which is a pretty good indication that this came in the first year and a half, two years of even within the lifetime of the Prophet of Medina. But then there are ayat of this surah that span the entire like later life of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. So it's not like the whole surah came down at once. Once it came down little by little by little. Over several years. Actually, some ulama even argue that the last ayat given to the Prophet ﷺ, the last of them, were part of Surah Al-Baqarah. The last of the ayat given to Rasulullah ﷺ. And it's also unique that even though it is in its entirety a, Medina, a Madani surah, a small portion of it, you, don't even, you can't even call it a Makkan surah. It's, a, it's, a, it's got a Samawi, Sabah Nuzul. Because when you say Makkan, it means the surah came from the sky to Makkah. When you say Madani, you, say, you mean the surah came from the sky to Medina. But the last couple of ayat of the surah, Rasulullah didn't receive, they didn't come down, Rasulullah went up. He received them when he went up in, in the mi'raj. So it's got this special feature, the, the concluding dua, that was, that's what I recited in the Ishaq prayer. So it's got these unique qualities to it, among many others, that we're going to get to inshallah ta'ala eventually. So let's begin right away. Again, important to note, the difference between the audience. You know, Allah, there's a famous saying in Arabic, خَاطِبُوا nas عَلَىٰ qadri عُقُولِهِمْ Talk to people depending on their level of understanding, their background. The way I talk to children is different from teenagers, is different from college students, is that I've been Muslim for a long time. There's a difference between them. There are different audiences. So the audience of Medina is different because they actually have background with revelation. They know about Torah, they know about Injil. Some of them are very many generations of Christians or many generations of Jews. Right? So, and they are also the audience of this Qur'an. They're also hearing this Qur'an. So the Qur'an is not only being recited to the Muslims. Nowadays, when I'm reciting Qur'an and somebody walks by, or somebody heard from the outside of the building, maybe even a little bit of the recitation, they have no idea what's, being, what's going on. Back then when Qur'an was being recited, it was in the language of the people. And it was something they very directly and immediately understood, whether they were Muslim or not. Do you understand? So this was almost like a radio broadcast for everybody who's out there, the, the Jews, the Christians, the Muslims, everybody. And so with that background in mind, you have to appreciate what's going to happen inside of this surah. This is different from the people of Makkah because they didn't have background in revelation. Those people were mushrikun, they worshipped idols, and they had forgotten the religion of Ismail and Ibrahim salam from thousands of years ago. They kept the sacrifice, but they forgot why they sacrificed. They kept the Kaaba, but they forgot what the purpose of the Kaaba was. So the idea of revelation and akhirah, all of those things were erased. 
they were gone. This is not the case for this audience, right? The other last difference I'll share with you is that the Madani audience, a good number of them, because they, they've also, we have the khutbah of Jumu'ah. The Christians have their day in the church. The Jews have their Sabbath in the synagogue, right? And they go listen to a khutbah like we listen to a khutbah. They have that tradition too. And in their khutbah, their leaders are their scholars. They have ulama too. You know, they have, they have people that they listen to and learn from, the religion from. And those were learned people. Those were, you can say, scholarly people. Even the Qur'an calls them al-ahbar. doesn't even call them ulama. In one place, ulama Bani Israel. But Allah, another word Allah uses is al-ahbar. Ahbar comes from the word hibr, which means ink. Meaning these people read and write so much, and their hands go over you know, pages and pages of books so much, their hands are always look like they dipped in ink. That's why they're called ahbar. So very, very scholarly people. Now compare this to the Prophet ﷺ, who Qur'an himself calls al-Nabi al-Ummi. The Prophet, the Prophet who, is, who is as uncontaminated with education as someone who just came out of their mother. In other words, he's unlettered. That's the easy translation of Ummi. He's unlettered. But it comes from the word Ummi, which comes from Um, because he has the same formal education as someone who just came from their mother. Right? He has no background in formal education. And he's teaching deen. Now he's teaching religion. So the other people that are teaching religion in Medina are ulama. Learn from ulama who learn from ulama. Whether they're teaching Christianity or Judaism. And here you have a man teaching the, the religion of God and he's commenting on their religion too. The Qur'an is commenting on Judaism. The Qur'an is commenting on Christianity. And yet he himself, no scholarly background whatsoever. As a matter of fact, that same word ummi, which Allah Azza wa Jal says, هُوَ الَّذِي بَعَثَ فِي الْأُمِّيِّينَ رَسُولًا مِنْهُمْ He's the one who appointed among the ummiyin, the unlettered people. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ was sent not to Medina. Where was he sent first? To Mecca, they're, they're the ummiyin. And the messenger from among them, right? So when that, that same word, which to us is actually a noble word, because it's one of the descriptions of the Prophet ﷺ, and it's part of his miracle. This was a term that was actually an insult used by the Yahud and the Nasara, the rabbis among them, and the priests among them. They would actually say, this, guy, this one's going to teach you? He doesn't even know how to read and write. What's he going to teach you? And so with that, the reason I shared that background with you is because the first words of this surah are alif, lam, mim. These are three letters. They're letters. And the only person who ever, any, anybody who knows letters, the only reason they would know letters is because they're learning to read. There's no other reason you should know letters. You know, there are people that are uneducated, they never received any education in English. They speak English, but they never went to school. You tell them A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, these words no, make no sense to them. These letters have no value to them. What does that even mean? What do you mean W? What is that? I have never heard this word before. Because the only time you worry about letters is when you worry about spelling. And the only time you worry about spelling is if you're going to read or you're going to write. Yes? And that's something the Prophet ﷺ has no access to. So when he recites Alif, Lam, Mim, it already sends shockwaves in that community. Wait, who taught him letters? I thought he's Ummi. If he's saying Alif, Lam, Mim, it must mean he has a teacher. Because he can't learn those on his own. If he doesn't know, he should just be saying Alam. Alam tara kaifa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-feel. You know? That's, that's what he should be saying. But the fact that he's saying Alif, Lam, Mim, necessarily means he has a teacher. So now even the people that are listening to him are saying, who's his teacher? And what are they teaching him? I mean it already, and why would they teach him these letters? 
So it created that question in the mind of the audience. And that's very, very important. Because the question will be answered that the teacher is Allah. He's the one who's taught him. Right? But the, and the idea that he's actually receiving an education. Because otherwise there's no way he would even know what letters signify anyway. The second thing you should know about Alif Lam Meem is its unprecedented usage. This is very important as we go through the dars today, this will become clearer and clearer inshaAllah ta'ala. That the Qur'an said things in a way that had never been used before. Nobody talked like this. The Arabs were very proud of their language. They used to think of everybody else as ajam, basically incapable of proper speech, you know, retarded even which is a politically incorrect term nowadays, they thought everybody is less because they don't know Al-Arabiyyah. You know? And they're the ones that are, you know, that, that, that mastered the language. And yet the Qur'an, from the kinds of verbs that it used, to the kinds of letters that it used, to the kinds of sentences that it used, it said things in a way that had never been heard before. Nobody ever talks like this, not even close. You know, even when a new poet comes and makes some amazing poetry, it is still based on 80% the previous poetry. Those of you that don't appreciate poetry, the younger audience here, maybe they're into hip-hop, maybe they're into R&B, maybe they're into what's some kind of music or another. You'll notice that beats or rhymes, they're not entirely creative. There's elements of it that is from previously existing music. They take the ingredients that are already there, and then build on it something new. But it's not entirely new, it's like maybe 10% new. 20% new. Majority of it is actually something already somebody had already done. You see? So, when the Qur'an says something like Alif, Lam, Mim even, this is unheard of. Why would someone speak like this? It would not only create the question, it would actually create a curiosity. This teacher, whoever his teacher is, nobody's ever learned from this teacher around here. <laughs> nobody's ever gotten that kind of education before. So the mind is already being prepared to accept the revelation of the Qur'an just with Alif Lam Mim. Just with that. And so when Alif Lam Mim is said, the other thing for us, for believers, because you know this didn't just have benefit for those who did not believe. But even Alif Lam Mim has guidance for those who believe. We know by ijma' of the ulama, even though some have some opinions, that no one knows what Alif Lam Mim means. It's wrong to say it doesn't mean anything. That's wrong to say because everything Allah says has meaning. Everything Allah says has purpose. But on the other hand, everything Allah gave us we know is for our benefit. Allah doesn't speak in the Qur'an, He doesn't speak unless it is something that will teach you and me something. He Himself says, عَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ عَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ He didn't just say, قَالَ الْقُرْآنَ He said the Qur'an. تَكَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ He spoke the Qur'an. No, عَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ he taught the Qur'an. The thing about teaching as opposed to speaking, when someone's speaking, they're just running their mouth. But when someone is teaching, who do they have in mind? The student. So everything they teach is supposed to benefit who? The student. Which means with that formula, even when you read Alif Lam Mim, it is supposed to have some kind of benefit from you, for you. But then the question arises, I don't even know what it means, how is it supposed to benefit me? Because in order for me to benefit, I better have, I have to understand. And especially when you're sitting in a classroom, and a teacher says something, and you don't get it, that means you didn't benefit. So you have to raise your hand and say, what? I don't understand. Could you repeat that? Could you explain it to me? I need a better explanation. But no matter who you ask in the world, can somebody explain Alif Lam Mim? Could somebody tell me what it means? What's the tafsir of these letters? What's the mystery behind them? Nobody has a clear answer. 
and nobody has had a clear answer, and it seems pretty obvious, nobody's gonna have a clear answer, until you get, come before Allah on Judgment Day, and beyond, and Allah Azza wa Jalla allows us by His mercy to enter into His Jannah, and we get the, the opportunity to ask our teacher, Allah Azza wa Jalla, what does Alif Lam mean? But you know then, even then there's benefit. The question, I, I'm building this question for you, <laughs> what's the benefit then? The benefit is, you know what's called, for college students here they know, it's called student orientation. You ever heard of student orientation? First day of class, the teacher comes into the classroom and says, listen, you have to have this attitude, you have to put this much hours in homework, you better not do this, this, this and this, you better finish your assignments on time, the exams you better start preparing for them three weeks in advance. He prepares you mentally for everything that's coming, yes? And if you're not properly mentally prepared for the course, and the best one to prepare you is the teacher himself, then you're not gonna have the right attitude necessary to be able to succeed in learning. The first orientation for the student of the Qur'an is that they don't know anything. The first orientation for the student of the Qur'an is alif, lam, mim. What does it mean? You don't know and you better get used to that. Wallahu ya'lamu wa antum la ta'lamun. Allah is the one who knows, you're the ones who don't know. Don't come to this book to try to put criticisms on it and impose upon Allah that unless I understand, I will not follow. Unless I am satisfied, my curiosity is satisfied, until then, I'm not convinced enough, I don't want to follow it. No, 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 no. You're gonna have to come to this book with humility, not with curiosity. You know, nowadays we read books, and you can download a PDF, you can put things on your Kindle or your iPad or something, and read a book, and you enjoyed some chapter, you didn't like some other chapters, and because these books are part of an industry, the sales industry, even when you're about to buy a book, before you buy a book, you look at how many stars it got. Did it get one star, two stars, three stars, four stars? Is it a New York Times bestseller? What are the reviews of this book? What do we do when we read books? We not just learn, we also critique. We criticize. We give our commentary and say, I like it, it's kinda okay. I didn't really like this part of it. We do this with movies, we do this with cartoons, we do this with, you know, we do this with books. Actually, now we do this even with professors in college. You rate your professor, right? And you give them a star rating, he's pretty bad with homework, his tests are torture and all of this stuff, right? In other words, you're in a position of control. You're in a position of control because in a consumer society, the customer is always, what's the, what do they say? The customer is always what? He's always right. The student in a college is a customer because he paid tuition. The reader of a book is a customer because he paid for the book. You understand? Everybody's a customer, which means they're always in a position to criticize, critique, etc., etc. And so we bring that consumer attitude to the Quran, and even Muslims will read the Quran and say, I don't get this part, I don't understand. I mean, I read it, but it's kind of weird. This is a little confusing this here and there. And they'll talk like they're talking about just any other book. This is not just any other book. You don't come to it like a customer who's always right. You come to it like a beggar. You come to it bankrupt. And this is the only thing that will feed you. You come to it like a, de a, a, a person lost in the desert, and they're dying of dehydration, and you give them a little bit of water. They're not going to complain what the temperature is. Or, you know, don't you have soda? Do you have orange juice instead? They're, not, they're just going to take it. When you're desperate for guidance, then you have, you have to be ready. Allah knows better for me what I need to know and what I don't need to know. And another part of this, very beautiful part of this orientation from Allah, to set our attitude right when we study the book of Allah. Because wallahi al-azim, you can study the book of Allah, 
But if you don't have the right attitude, and you don't have the right mindset, and your heart is not in the right place, then يُضِلُّ بِهِ كَثِيرًا وَيَهْدِي بِهِ كَثِيرًا Same book will guide so, many, guide so many, and Allah will misguide so many with this book, because they came with the wrong attitude. And that's what Allah says Himself when He says, وَمَا يُضِلُّ بِهِ إِلَّا الْفَاسِقِينَ he doesn't corrupt by means of this book except, uh, you know, he doesn't misguide with, with this book except those that are inherently corrupt. So what is that next lesson within Alif Lam Mim that I want to share with you? That is that we need to be okay. We need to be okay with, with curbing and stopping our curiosity. There are some people who are still stuck at Alif Lam Mim. They've been studying the Qur'an for 10 years and they're doing research on what one thing? What does Alif Lam Mim mean? They never even got to Dalikal Kitabul Aribafi. I think Alif is a code. Its numerical value is 37.8. And Lam is another code. It has this value. And Mim is this. And my theory says Alif and Lam Mim. Mim and they're just, they're doing, they're studying everything about the Quran except the Quran itself. You get lost in these details. Because now, you're not receiving, you're not, the, the, the word of Allah is not in charge. Your curiosity is in charge. What you find interesting is in charge. And some people, you know, they, they, they pursue ma tashabaha minhu. Ibtira al-fitna wa ibtira ta'wilihi. They only follow what is not, Allah made it unclear on purpose to see what kind of, you know, sick minds are only going to be curious about the things Allah didn't want to tell you. You know, it's equally important in the role of a teacher to teach you things, and it's equally important to not teach you certain things. Is to, that's actually a, a learning process too. I will not tell you. You should not be asking certain questions. You should be staying away from certain curiosities. Not every curiosity is good for you. We recite Surah Al-Kahf every Friday. Musa alayhi salam is on a journey. What was his orientation? لا تسألني في شيئن don't ask me anything until I talk to you. That's part of his orientation. So it's not, you know, in, in our society now, in the learn, modern learning environment, every question is a good question. All questions are welcome. About everything and anything. To some, in some respect, there is an open field for questions. The difference between useful and useless questions. Ask questions, but ask which kind? Useful ones. You're not gonna, if Allah did not want to tell you what it means, that means not knowing is useful to you. Not, not knowing what it means is the most beneficial thing for you. And so that's a little bit of the story of Alif Lam Mim. But you'll notice, subhanAllah, I told you it's like an orientation towards the book, and you'll notice something in the Qur'an that's remarkable. Pretty much the majority of the times when you see one of these letters, Alif Lam Mim, Qaf, Sad, Alif Lam Mim Ra, Alif Lam Ra, you see all these letters? What do you find next to them? Alif Lam Mim, Allahu la ilaha illahu al hayyul qayyum, nazzala alayka al kitab. Alif Lam Mim Saad, kitabun unzila ilayk. Alif Lam Ra, tilka ayatul kitab al hakim. Alif Lam Ra, tilka ayatul kitab al mubin. Alif Lam Ra, kitabun anzalahu ilayk. Taha ma anzala alayka al Quran li tashka. Alif Lam Mim, tilka ayatul kitab al hakim, hudan wa rahmatan. للمحسنين حاميم تنزيل من الرحمن الرحيم ياسين والقرآن الحكيم حاميم والكتاب المبين over and over again when these letters come up the next ayah is about the Quran over and over again every time these letters come up and you say what does it mean Allah says Quran is clear Quran is full of wisdom I swear by the Quran that the revelation itself it's like Allah gives us that orientation but that's part of that part of the orientation you easily forget 
easily forgotten that we have to humble our curiosity and guide our, our minds in a good direction. And so Allah Azza wa reminds us of that lesson over and over and over and over again. And He doesn't even keep the same letters. He changes the letters. So the, the curious cat inside of us goes, why Hamim this time? Why not Alif Lam Mim this time? What about Alif Lam Ra? That one has Alif Lam Ra, this one has Alif Lam Mim. What's going on over here? You know? So you want to, and Allah tests you with it. He tests you, literally tests you with it. Are you going to get lost in these curiosities or find purpose in the book? Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let's move forward to the next ayah. Allah says, ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ هُدَلِّ الْمُتَّقِينَ is one ayah. It has several possibilities. But the first thing I'd like to do with this is, inshallah, uh, begin with some vocabulary. The key words in this ayah are kitab, raib, hudan, and taqwa. Four words that if you know a little bit about that vocabulary, then we, we get into the durus, it'll actually be easier for you to understand. The first of those words is kitab or kataba. Kataba in modern Arabic means to write. But actually in old Arabic, the pen was very rare. People used to write and the way they used to write is they used to carve into stone or etch into wood or stitch into leather, like raqama, right? To stitch into leather. But the idea is when you scratch onto something and you make the letters, you, you write onto a tree or something like that, that's actually originally kitaba. That's kitaba. Now that's a little bit different from our time. Because when we write something now, most of the time we're writing on a digital device. You're just touching your fingers on something or typing on a keyboard. The, the, the thing is, when you do that, if you wrote a sentence and you don't like one word, what can you do? Delete, select, cut, paste. Or you want this sentence that's at the end of your paragraph, you want it in the beginning of your paragraph, you just select it, drag and you put it in the beginning of your paragraph. You can do that in digital writing. But if you were to take a piece of stone and hammer it in and write something and then say this word should be over there, what are you going to do now? <laughs> Let's start over again, new rock. You know, you see kids back in the day, they have writing assignments, and they wrote something incorrectly, then another incorrectly, and they cross it out, cross it out, and then they... Mm, and then they start over again. That's the pain of kitabah, right? Because it's once you write it, it's set. Once you write it, you can't. There's no delete button. There's no erase button. There's no drag and drop. You know, the whiteout was the greatest invention of my youth. Like that was the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> you know, because I can't remember how many papers I've ripped just erasing. My I, like erasers were slaughtered in my youth. You know, you just you know. But the, this, this idea of back in the day, you can't erase because you carved it in. You scratched it in, it's set. By using the word kitab, Allah Azza wa is actually telling us a profound reality about the Qur'an. What it is, is what it is. There's no room for edit. There's no room to go back and change. There's no room to modify or to reconfigure. And by the way, when you carve something in, is the order set or no? The order is set, it is no longer subject to any change. Imagine an oral tradition. It was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ orally. And yet Allah called it kitab. He still called it kitab. Because the order of the entire Qur'an, every single surah in the entire Qur'an, was already meant to be set, as literally set in stone. Set in stone. So why is Fatiha first? Baqarah second, Ali Imran third, Nisa fourth. In this order, if this was flexible, you can't call it kitab. If it's flexible, you can't call it kitab. You can call it kalam. You can move kalam around. But you can't move kitab around. 
Kitab is set the way it is. It's etched in, it's carved in, you understand? So that's a very powerful indication within the word kitab itself. But then again, there's another thing about the difference between kitab and Qur'an. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, this is an opportunity to review that lesson. The word Qur'an comes from qara'a. And qara'a means to read out loud. Kataba, I told you already, means to carve. And the two most popular names of Allah's book are kitab and Qur'an. Al-kitab al-Qur'an. These, both of these mean two slightly different things. When Allah says al-kitab, He's referring to something that is written. When Allah calls it al-Qur'an, He's referring to something that is what? Recited. Something that is recited. Now the thing is, the recitation of the Qur'an happens here, in dunya. But the writing of the book, where did it happen? In Allah al-Mahfuz. It happened up in the seven heavens, seventh heaven. In the, um, surrounded by the guardian angels, you know, the kiramim barara, that are surrounding it. That's where Allah wrote the Qur'an. Now the thing is, Qur'an, the recitation of the Qur'an happens here. And this world is close to us. But that writing is far away from us. That writing is not near, that is far. So let me give you this in a, in a brief exercise. When something is close, you call it this. When something is far, you call it that. Allah Azza wa Jal did not say, هَذَا الْكِتَابِ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ He said, ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابِ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ that book. He didn't call it this book. He called it that book. Because where it is written, where it is in the form of a book is not near, that is actually far. But the six times Allah talks about the Qur'an, He says, أُوحِيَا إِلَيَّا هَذَا الْقُرْآنِ إِنَّ هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ يَهْدِي لِلَّتِهِ يَأْقُوَمْ He doesn't say that Qur'an guides. Or that Qur'an has been revealed to me. He says, this Qur'an has been revealed to me. He uses the closer word. Why? Because the recitation happens where? The qira'ah happens here. The kitabah happened over there. So it's far away. So subhanallah, Allah says, ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابُ You know the first thing you learn, the other, the, there's a continuity. Remember Alif Lamim made you curious about a teacher who taught him the letters. And letters obviously come in a book. And that, where's the, where's the book? I mean if he's learning, I've never seen him with a book. Because he can't even read a book anyway. Where's the book that he learns from? It's pretty far away. You see? So there's this con- continuous image that's being painted here. That's the first word, al-kitab. The second word is raib. Raib is one of several words in the Arabic language used for doubt. Shak is used, maraj is used. There are several other words that are used for doubt. But al-raib fihi, that, that, like, I'll read it to you from Kashaf directly. Haqiqatul riba, qaliqun nafs, wattirabuha. That the, the reality of raib is when a person is disturbed on the inside. And they're shaken up on the inside. There are different kinds of doubts. Like, a car went by and you're like, was that a Mercedes? I'm not sure. Maybe a Hyundai. Because they design them the same now. You know, so... That's a doubt that doesn't bother you. It doesn't bother you. But then there's a kind of doubt that you're, you're, you got a question in your mind and it's bothering you. And you don't understand. And it's eating away at you and you can't sleep at night because of it until this confusion is removed from you, you know. And that kind of doubt that you lose sleep over, that disturbs you, that's actually called raib. That's called raib. That's, that's, we don't have to go deeper than that into the word, but a doubt that causes disturbance, right? That's the simple definition of the word raib. The next word that I want to give you before we get into the ayah itself, uh, Hudan will skip because that's rather obvious, is al-muttaqeen. 
Al-muttaqin comes from word uh, from the word taqwa or wiqaya. Wiqaya actually means protection. And actually means over or excessive protection. They say in Arabic, for example, I'll, I'll pull it up for you. I took some notes on it. Fartu siyana, excessive hyperprotection. For yuqalu lil faras farasun waq. A certain kind of horse is called a protective horse. Why is it called that? Ida asabahu dilun min gala bin gildil ard, aw rikatil hafir, fahua yaki hafirahu, and yusibahu adna shayin yulimuhu. Basically, what all of that Arabic meant is you have a horse who's, you know, the horse have a hoof, the feet. And in order to protect the feet, what do you do? You put like a metal clamp underneath it, and you put horseshoes on it, right? But imagine a horse, a battle horse who lost his horseshoes. His feet become extra what? Sensitive, right? So it's walking on uneven land, and it's very careful everywhere it places its feet, because its feet have become extra sensitive. And that horse is said to be observing taqwa. In Arabic, before Islam, they said that horse is exhibiting taqwa right now, because it watches every single step. Which step might hurt me? Which step will be okay for me to take? SubhanAllah. Allah used that word to describe the attitude of a believer, and that's actually part of the meaning, the, uh, the fundamental meanings of the word muttaqi. Now let's get into the ayah itself. I told you some things about ذَلِكَ why, you know, that has an implication. Inshallah, yeah. So, there are six different ways of looking at this ayah. And if I was teaching this to Arabic students, I would go through the i'rab of this ayah six different ways. And it's, it's just absolutely fascinating. If I did that with you though, you would run so fast out of here, there would be accidents in the parking lot. So we we're not going to do that. I'll give you something else instead. I'll give you the juice of it. I'll, instead of getting, giving you the technical part, I'll give you the conclusion. Not the, not the way you get to the conclusion, but the conclusion itself. The first of them is, I'll put it in English translation for you, Alif Lam Meem, that is the book. Alif Lam Meem is the orientation. Wait, what? What did he just say? And then that is the book, and I'm, I'll change the translation of book now. Because Al-Kitab is also a mustard in Arabic, which means that in fact is written, or it's writing itself. Somebody heard it, I want you to imagine, somebody heard the Prophet recite Alif Lam Meem Dhalik Al-Kitab, and Allah is telling them, did you just hear me say Alif Lam Meem? That is writing, you know that, right? That's not just him talking, it must have come from something written. It's uniquely written, isn't it? And it's written like nothing else has been written. That's why it's not ذَلِكَ kitabun. it's ذَلِكَ kitab. The khabar of it is actually مُعَرَّف بِاللَّهِ خَاصَةً كَأَنَّ لَيْسَ هُنَاكَ كِتَابَ دُونَ هَذَا As though there's no other writing other than this. You've never experienced writing like this, that you're getting to hear now. So what you're hearing is not just a man talking, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. he's actually taking from a book that comes from far away. That's the first implication. The second of them, is that Alif Lam Mim, they say would be the Mubtada, Thalik Al-Kitab would be the Khabar. In English that would translate, Alif Lam Mim is in fact that book. Alif Lam Mim is one of the names of the Qur'an according to the, some ulama. Grammatically, that one of the names of the Qur'an is Alif Lam Mim, and that's also beautiful that one of the names of the Qur'an is mysterious. Because there are things in it that will humble the human being. No matter how much we learn, at the end of the day we don't know anything. At the end of the day, we don't know anything. One thing about the humility of and the, the, the weakness of human knowledge, Allah Azza wa says, "Huwa الذي أخرجكم من بطون أمهاتكم لا تعلمون شيئا." He's the one who put pulled you out of the bellies of your mothers, and then he says, "لا تعلمون شيئا," which means, as he pulled you out of the bellies of your mothers, you didn't know anything. 
Obviously, when we're babies, we don't know anything. But that jumla could also be not just haliya but musta'nifa, which means you still don't know anything. He pulled you out of your moms, and by the way, you still don't know anything. Subhanallah. Like Allah puts humanity in its place when He speaks like this. So He says, Alif Lam Mim, ذلك الكتاب. That would be the name of the book. The third implication is Alif Lam Mim by itself. ذلك الكتاب is actually, that is in fact the book. As though humanity was waiting. Where was the surah revealed? What did I tell you? Medina. Medina was a population of who and who? Jews and Christians. And the Jews and the Christians had several texts, several indications that the final book is coming. They were waiting. They were waiting. And so when they heard Alif Lam Mim, he must have an outside teacher, immediately Allah answers that population too and says, that's the book you've been waiting for. That is the book. The one that you, you pray for. That the signs would come and the victory would come and the final messenger would come. It has arrived. الكتاب. And then the second sentence would be La Raybafi. There's absolutely no doubt in it that it is the book you were waiting for. That is the one that's been promised. Al Kitabul Ma'ud, like Sabim Ibn Ashur and other Mufasirun say, al Kitabul Ma'ud, that's the book that's been promised before. The one that you've been anticipating. Kafaru. We will read later on in Surah Al Baqarah. The, the Jews were so anxious to, for the final messenger in the last book to come. They used to talk about it. They used to say, man, these Quraysh, they beat us up in battle all the time. But next time Quraysh, our messenger is coming soon with the last book. And when he comes, Allah has guaranteed him victory. Then we'll show you. That's what they used to do. And so Allah points to it and says, ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابِ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ And then that third part, that's the final piece of it. You can say this is a nasbu ala al-ighra, which means an incredible guidance, powerful guidance for people who want to be careful, people who want to take every step protectively, avoiding harm that will come to themselves. People that want to tread a careful life for those people, there's absolutely guidance inside of this book. On this occasion, what I want to share with you before I move any further is that in this orientation, this, all of this is orientation, right? And Allah in His wisdom decided that after the Fatiha, this should be the next surah. So it's like this surah will give us this picture of Islam and the Qur'an like nothing else. So our minds are properly ready to engage the Book of Allah the rest of our lives. right? So these ayat are very valuable. So it's okay if I'm taking my time. If I finish this dars today within the next 15-20 minutes, and we only got through 3-4 ayat, I won't be sad. I'm not, I'm not worried about finishing more with you. I would rather we internalize some of these lessons inshallah ta'ala. And every time we hear these ayat, we relive them. Okay? So what I want to share with you now is, first thing, this has heavenly origin. Alif lamim dhalik al-kitab. But then there are two principles that Allah Azza wa Jal revealed. Two things that will define my relationship with this book. The first of those principles is la rayba there's absolutely no room for any doubt that bothers you on the inside, whatsoever in it. In this book, there's no room for any skepticism, any uncertainty. I'm not so sure. Is it really from Allah? There's no room for that whatsoever. Not in this book. And so the question then arises, how not? I will get to that in a second. The first of them is, there should be no room for doubt. And... The only way you will have no doubt left, how can, how can you talk to just somebody and say, this is the book of God? He'll say, well, I have a Bible, that's the book of God too. Somebody else will bring a Veda from the Hindu scripture and say, this is the book of God too. Actually, this is a book of lots of gods. You know, 
So, how are you saying book, book of Mormon is a book of God? Your book, the Quran, is a book of God. How am I supposed to know that this one's right and those are wrong? See, some of you are in college, your friend comes to you, you know, there's so many religions, somebody's got to be wrong. How do you know you guys are right? You're like, well, you know, luck of the draw. <laughs> Sometimes you have kids that come, and come to their parents and say, you know, don't you ever wonder, mom, when judgment day comes, which one's going to be right? <laughs> and moms freak out like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what, what do I recite on this child? What ruqiyah do I do? You know. <laughs> How are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to know without any room with, of any doubt that this is the book of Allah? How did the followers of Musa salam know without a doubt that he's a messenger? They questioned him so much, didn't they? But when he struck the staff and the water parted, if you were in that audience, there is no room left. He's a messenger of God. You know what? I'm just going to go through this river with a tawdul azim on either side, two massive mountains of water standing and retaining a shape without a container, and I'm going through in the middle. Uh, he's definitely a messenger. That, that's, I'm done questioning. I'm good. I'm straight. I'm, I'm set. In other words, when does doubt get removed? When you see a miracle. Doubt is removed when you see a miracle. The people who followed Isa alayhi, who questioned Isa alayhi salam, when they see a clay bird turn into a real living bird by Allah's permission, the doubt is gone. When, when a staff turns into a snake, the doubt is gone. But the question is, this book is not parting any rivers. This book is not turning any sticks into a snake. It's just printed, glossy paper. Where's the miracle? Allah Azza wa Jal gave us this book and it's miraculous not for the eyes. It's miraculous for the ears. This is the last of all miracles. Those miracles that were given to previous prophets to remove doubt. What's the purpose of miracles? To remove doubt. That's their purpose. Don't forget that. It's not special effects. It's not so you look at it and say, whoa, that was awesome. That's not the purpose. The purpose is there should be no doubt left. That's the reason those miracles were given. But within one generation, the miracle dies. The miracle dies. Why? Because for the next generation, that miracle is just a story. They didn't see it. For you to experience a miracle, you have to see it with your own eyes. Even that next generation of the Banu Israel, or the next generation of the followers of Isa alayhi salam, or Salih alayhi salam, or Ibrahim alayhi salam, Allah says there are some people with him. When he walked out of a fire without burning, there were some people with him. Those people, when they tell the story to their children, it is just a... Story, if they didn't see it, like, ah, come on, dad. <laughs> really? Okay, fine, fine. After all, this is Sunday school, I'll follow along. But really, I have my doubts. I have my questions. But this final Qur'an, this last revelation that Allah gave us, Allah gave us a miracle inside it that is not for the eyes. It's for the ears. And it's not for every ear. There's a big difference now. Those miracles, even if you weren't follower of Musa, if you were just fishing in the river, and the water parted, and you looked at that man, you said, that man, he's got some connection with God, I don't know what's going on over here, you would see that as a miracle, yes or no? Yes. You would, immediately. But the Qur'an, anybody who reads it, are they going to see it as miraculous? No. You have people who read it, يَزِيدُهُمْ nufura. It increases them in even more hatred. They used to hate Islam before, after reading the Qur'an, they really hate Islam. 
They really hate Islam. There are people who are skeptical before, after reading a translation, they become even more skeptical, isn't it? So the question is, where's the miracle? The miracle Allah decided for the last messenger, and this last message is no longer free. It's not just anybody just glances at it and they see a miracle. Nope. The only way you will find the miracle of this book is if you come looking for it. And you reflect inside this book. And you dig and ponder into this book. Then it will become clear this can only be from God. If you give it a shallow look, it will give you nothing. If you decide to dive in deep, I had a friend in college who was born in a Muslim family, but they're not very religious family. They sent him to college, he decided to do a bachelor's in philosophy. What happens in a, after a bachelor's in philosophy? Your iman has a janazah, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. So he's completely gone off the deep end, he's, com- he's an agnost, he's a skeptic, he doesn't believe in anything, he's not even sure if he exists. You know, he's one of those guys, he's out there floating in space. And then he was challenged to ponder on the Qur'an, just ponder over the Qur'an. And so he did. He brought all of his philosophical questions, all of his, from every ism you can think of, he brought to the Qur'an. And he just studied it for a couple of years. He just studied the Qur'an, asking it questions, hoping he can find something he can, that can finally, philosophy can crush this book. But he kept getting defeated by this book. And you know, people that study philosophy love to debate. So when they lose a debate, they get really ticked off. Their ego is hurt. So they want to come back and crush it this, the next time. So he keeps coming back with more criticisms, but he's not arguing with a person. Who's he arguing with? This book, he just debated with this book. He used to like literally slam it shut sometimes because it shut him up. He was looking for it. it. I bet you it doesn't have an answer for this. And he reads it. Oh, it's there again. I got to find something else. And he would go back and forth angry with this book. And two years later, he, he told me himself, it, I wrestled this book and it pinned me down. And I came to this deen. Yeah, I know. Tell me I know. I, I, it pinned me down. This is la but it doesn't give itself for free. He could have been a philosophy student, read a translation of the Qur'an and say, ah, nothing here, and move on. But if you decide to ponder, why am I saying ponder? That's not something I came up with. That's something Allah's own claim. أَفَلَا يَتَدَبَّرُونَ الْقُرْآنَ وَلَوْ كَانَ مِنْ عِنْدِ غَيْرِ اللَّهِ لَوَجَدُوا فِي اخْتِلَافًا كَثِيرًا Don't they then reflect on the Qur'an? Because had it been from someone, anyone other than Allah, they would have found a lot of contradictions in it. By the way, if you study the Qur'an in a shallow way, you will find contradictions. Allah says if they reflect, they will not find contradictions. Which means if they don't reflect, what will happen? They will find contradictions. They will make websites, blogs, videos dedicated to the contradictions. They will make lists of contradictions in the Qur'an because they don't do tadabbur. And if they were to do tadabbur, then they will become convinced that this can only be the word of Allah. The first part of my relationship with the Qur'an is there's no doubt in it. It's a miracle. The second part of my relationship with the Qur'an, hudallil muttaqin. It is a guidance. It's advice. It's counsel. Hudan literally means guidance for someone who's lost. Hidayah in Arabic is closely related to the word hadiyah, or hadiyah, which means a gift. For the Arab that was lost in the desert, the problem when getting lost in the desert is, you don't even know if you're walking in a straight line. You can be walking in a straight line, but end up circling and ending up where you started. You understand? What's the biggest gift you can give to someone lost in the desert? That's why hadiyah and hadiyah are related to each other. If you flew over with a helicopter and dropped a water bottle and says, Good luck man, that's not enough of a gift. He needs hidayah. 
The hadiyah he needs is hidayah. You understand? That's the one that's going to help him survive. To know which direction to go to. This word itself, it illustrates not the intellectual relationship we have with the Qur'an, where there's no doubt. That's already covered in La Rayba This is the second dimension of our relationship with the Qur'an. A relationship in which I am constantly seeking direction. I am constantly, just like our bodies have a relationship with water. I can't say I already had water yesterday, no need today. I can't. I will, my body will necessitate water. Isn't it? Allah Azza wa Jal in the Qur'an, when He describes the revelation of the Qur'an, He always compares it to what? Water. He compares it to water. There's a very close relationship that you have with water, that you have with the Qur'an. Your thirst doesn't let you go. Every few hours you have to what? Drink again. Whether it's water, or it's some kind of fruit that has water in it, or food that has water in it, the water is always there. The liquid is always there. Right? Every few hours, you're gonna have to fill the thirst of your heart as well. And that water, that water of revelation is actually what? The Qur'an itself. Every few hours, we stand in front of Allah, in salah, and say, اِهْدِنَا الصِّلَاةَ الْمُسْتَقِيمُ I'll translate that figuratively, let us have a drink again. We're thirsty again. You need to guide us again. Guidance and thirst are closely related. You understand? So now, that's the second bit of our relationship. When there's no doubt left, and you're completely convinced this is the word of Allah, then you're gonna come to the Qur'an, and you're gonna ask Allah for guidance. And then when He gives you guidance, you will follow it because there's no doubts. Because there's no doubts. When you see young people reluctant to follow the word of Allah, not so motivated to follow the word of Allah, they're not taking the hudal muttaqin seriously. You know where the problem usually is? The problem is la rayba fihi hasn't been met yet. You have to take care of la rayba fihi, and then what do you get? Hudal muttaqin There's an order here. There's an order that has to be established. So we have to convince our young generation of the miraculous power of the Qur'an, of, of why it can only be the word of Allah. It can't be anything else. There's no possibility of doubt inside of this book. And so these three things are in a particular sequence. And that's the next thing I wanted to quickly highlight before you, but again, without getting technical. There's another reading of this ayah, which is, ذَلِكَ kitab, لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ هُدَى لِلْمُتَّقِينَ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهِ هُدَى لِلْمُتَّقِينَ All together. What that means is, that is in fact the book. There is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that in it, there is guidance for those who have taqwa, for those who want to protect themselves. In other words, if you want to save yourself, if you want to lead a careful life, there is no way Allah will not give you to drink. There is no way Allah will leave you misguided. You know, we're living in the age of over-information, where people are thinking, I don't know what to follow. There's so much conflicting information. If you can turn to Allah and say, I just want to protect myself, Ya Rabbi, and then you come to this book, the Allah's guarantee, لا رَيْبَ فِيهِ هُدَى لِلْمُتَّقِينَ There's absolutely no doubt, no disturbing you know, feeling whatsoever that this, guide, this book will absolutely guide you. In a time where everything else will be confusing, this will be the one place of counsel that will never let you down. May Allah Azza wa Jal give us that, give us that lifelong relationship. The final thing I want to share with you before I let you guys go, right on time, bi'idhnillah, uh, is... They say hudallil muttaqin. Some grammarians say that hudallil muttaqin kahal yati halan huna iraban. That it comes as an adverbial phrase. Now that's difficult English as well. Let me simplify that for you. It's very cool. You know when I say, for example, the car is running. 
that's a running car. I saw the car as it was as it was running. The car is actually act. The engine is turned on, and it's actually vibrating. You understand? But if you say the car runs, the car runs. The car may not be on right now, but it has the potential. If you start it, it's gonna run. You understand? If you notice something that's actually engaged in the act, you could see it actively doing what you say it's doing. That's called a hal. Otherwise, it's just a sifa. Now Allah Azza wa Jal here says, "Hudalil muttaqin halan." One of the meanings of that is, not only does this book have the power to guide you, it is actually actively guiding. It is engaged in the act of guiding. It's not like it's got the potential for it, but it's not coming out. It's actually running. The engine's running, and you can see it running. It doesn't just have the potential for it. And so Allah Azza wa Jal made this something that is. Like a living experience for the believer, there are miracles of, of guidance in the Quran that only you will experience. Nobody else can explain them to you. You're going to be in a in a state of difficulty in your life. You're going to open up Allah's book. You're going to read some page, and you're going to read some ayat, and it's going to have the answer to the exact problem you had. And you cannot prove that to anyone. You cannot convince anyone else that's a miracle. That is a personal gift of guidance from Allah to you. Where the guidance of Allah came to life for you, that's the hal of hudan, hudan lil muttaqin. For that original generation, they were so fortunate. Subhanallah, it was incredible that they used to be in a situation and they didn't know what to do, and the angel Jibril would bring Quran and say, "Here's what you do." Ala mukthin, wa Quranan farqnahu li taqraahu ala nasi ala mukthin, wa nazzalahu tanzila in Surah Al-Isra. We revealed it at the very right occasion, at the perfect time the ayat would come down. But now the whole thing is down. For you and me, the entire 23 years of the Prophet ﷺ are right here. Done. What do we do? This is actually the entire Qur'an is being described is in, in the hal of guiding. In other words, it will always give you guidance as though it just came down. As though it just came down for you. That's the gift of Allah Azza wa Jal to those who are muttaqeen. Today our time for dars is done. Tomorrow our assignment inshallah ta'ala is to go on and understand these people who protect themselves and tread carefully, who engage in the act of wiqaya for themselves, wiqayatun nafs. Who are these people? How do you become a person of taqwa so they can actually, you and I can actually receive Allah's guidance? Barakallahu li wa lakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim wa nafa'ani wa iyaakum bil ayati wa dhikr al-Hakim wa jazakumullahu khairun. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. One quick announcement that I want to let you go. One minute inshallah ta'ala and exactly on time. Uh, this building, alhamdulillah, is a huge blessing from Allah Azza wa Jal. And uh, we at Bayina, I don't mind sharing this with you guys, we at Bayina almost went bankrupt trying to fix this place up. <laughs> we literally spent $100,000 a month for like two years to get to where we are here. But this is just the first of the floors. The auditorium is remarkable and it's done, alhamdulillah. But we still cannot move from our old campus here because the top two floors aren't finished. And we're hoping through this campaign and the viewers that are watching us, they support the effort here. The intention here, inshallah ta'ala, is to continue these durus and to actually do high-level production of, of Qur'an study material that will be consumed all over the world. In the studios that are going to be set up here, and the Institute for the, for the training of other future teachers as well. Arabic classes, Qur'anic Arabic classes, Tafsir classes, all of these things. And in, in, in not just classes, but also even creative uh, film. So that we can reach a younger audience in a way that hasn't been reached before. We're, we're such believers in this cause, we're willing to go bankrupt for it. We're okay with that. And if you guys are benefiting, and those of you that are watching are benefiting, inshallah ta'ala, support with an open heart so we can reach our goals, bi The link is bayina.org. Bayina, 
Bayinah.org. B-A-Y-Y-I-N-A-H.org. Spread the word about it. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.